Good evening and welcome back. And uh, hello, some of you I see for the first time tonight. This is our um, last meeting in this little three-part series that we've had. And uh, just to do a quick review, last night we talked about the importance of interpreting current events by what has been written by the prophets, right? We saw the importance of being able to say when something happens, well, this that's happening is that which was spoken by the prophet Daniel, John, Paul, whatever prophecy it might happen to be that's being fulfilled right in front of our very eyes. We need to be able to be on the scene with a biblical, clear, compelling interpretation of current world events, because when we know what's happening and we see that it's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, then we're able to tell people what they ought to do in that situation that they are finding themselves in that's developing in their own lives. Okay, so it's very important that we know the prophecies, that we help people understand the prophecies, especially when past prophecy becomes present truth. And we're going to be seeing a lot of that happening in the days ahead as the prophecies all become to converge in the last days and they're fulfilled in rapid succession and people are standing around wondering what's going on. How do we make sense of all this? Seventh-day Adventists need to be the people of the book. Amen. Able to say, well, this is that which has been written long ago. We understand it. We've been preparing for it. And now we are able to tell you by the grace of God what you ought to do uh, in your individual life to save yourself, to save your family and to save those that God puts across your path as well. This morning, we talked about the fact that end time events are actually going to develop in a certain way that have been foretold for us. And we can understand what they're going to look like. And as we discussed this morning, it's going to be a little bit tricky because the devil is going to have his counterfeits out there that he's going to be foisting upon the world, a false revival, a true revival going on side by side. And on the side of the false revival, there are going to be miracles. There's going to be the majority. There's going to be all the political backing. It's going to be popular. Everything's going to be on the side of the false revival except one thing. What is it? God's word, right? It'll be lacking in the truth of God's word on one particular point. On the side of the true revival, will there be miracles? Yes. Signs and wonders, yes, but those are not going to be the barometer of what is the right side to be on. Uh, when it all kind of shakes out, the only thing left to stand on is the Bible. The, safe, the scriptures will be our only safeguard to help uh, keep us from being deceived and help us make the right decisions in the last days. And so we learned this morning that, you know, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and disasters, natural disasters of every kind and great severity and great scope affecting people dramatically. Uh, the world is going to be effectively brought to its knees and begin to seek a spiritual solution to the problem. And uh, religious laws will be passed to get everybody on the same page, on the same program and going in the same direction. And it's going to be so successful that people are going to look around them and say, you know what? 
the millennium has come. The earthly millennium has come. We finally achieved it. You look around and say, what two words? Peace and safety everywhere. Can you imagine no wars anywhere? Just peace and safety. Of course, um, it's at that point when they say peace and safety that sudden destruction is about to come. And uh, I just want you to try to imagine what it's going to look like to be a true believer, faithful to God at that point. You know, because when uh, the plagues finally start breaking out, um, we're going to be looked at as the troublers of the people. And people are going to say, you know what? We've been through. We've been going through hell here. And now we finally got the thing fixed. And when the plagues start breaking out, they're going to say, we're not going back to that. And you people are standing in the way of earthly prosperity in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to have to uh, we have to get you out of the way. And it'll be the same way that Jesus was on trial. Remember what they said about him? Better that one man, what? Perish than the whole nation be destroyed. The Jewish leaders, when they looked at Jesus, what he was doing, what he was teaching, he was a threat to the entire religious economy of his time. I mean, if he was allowed to continue, they were going to lose everything that they held dear. And so they said, let's get rid of him and save ourselves. And the same thing will be true of God's true people in the last days. So it's going to be some very challenging times, isn't it? But we have to remember that in that time of trouble, such as never was, that God's people will be delivered out of it. And once that great time of trouble happens and comes about... Not one saint will lose his or her life at that time, right? God will protect and preserve his people from all the plagues. They won't come near your dwelling. And we will see the protective hand of God over us in reward for our faithfulness to him and to his truth. Okay, now that brings us to our topic for tonight. And I'd like you to open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 58. And this is going to be a little bit different tonight. You know, we are thinking of what can we leave you with after this short time together that will continue to stay with you from now until July when the big evangelistic meetings happen. And then on beyond July into the weeks and months and years that are still ahead. So tonight's presentation is not going to be real sensational and I'm going to talk about you know, some of these sensational things that we like to talk about sometimes, the Mark of the Beast, the Battle of Armageddon, church and state relations and all that. It's going to be very simple, but I think you're going to see it's very, very profound in its simplicity. And it will bring about, I think, a conviction in our hearts about something very, very important. So are you there in Isaiah 58? Just want to read through this chapter here real quickly. Verse 1. And let's pray. Father, we pray you'll now open our eyes as we read your word together and speak to our hearts. Father, in Jesus name. Amen. Cry aloud. Message tonight is called cry aloud and the loud cry. Cry aloud. Spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. 
Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast, God says, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate and smite with the fist of wickedness. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry and you bring the poor that are cast out to your house when you see the naked that you cover him, that you hide not yourself from your own flesh? Then shall thy light break forth as the morning and your health shall spring forth speedily and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear reward. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. Then you'll cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away from the midst of you the yoke, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. And if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall your light rise in obscurity and thy darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy your soul in drought and make fat your bones. And you'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build up the old waste places and you'll be raise the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable and will honor him, not doing your own ways or finding your own pleasure or speaking your own words, then you'll delight yourself in the Lord. I'll cause you to rise on the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, thy father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. How many of you believe that Isaiah 58 is a special chapter for Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath keepers? Do you believe that? I mean, it's right there, isn't it? About the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath and, and, and uh, following God's commandment, right? But we're going to find tonight that not only are those last few verses for us, but the entire chapter is speaking to Seventh-day Adventists. And speaking to Seventh-day Adventists at an important time in history called the Day of what? Atonement. What were they told to do on the Day of Atonement in Israel? Afflict their souls, right? What was blown for ten days to announce the coming of the Day of Atonement? Trumpets. And so we have this lift up your voice like a trumpet, talking about afflicting the soul. And so what we want to see tonight is if we're going to be the repairers of the breach... If we're going to be the people that restore the Sabbath, we need to look carefully at all these other verses here that also speak in the context to us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. So with that background, hopefully I can get this here working right here. And uh, I'm going to have to look on here so you look up on the screen here. But uh, let's do a little bit of a review. The passing of time in 1844 led to a recognition of the antitypical day of atonement and in time to the whole distinctive eschatology or 
end time event scenario of the Adventist church. Now, the root meaning of the noun atonement is the adjective phrase at one, at one meant or atonement. And the greatest evidence, the greatest evidence of Christ's at oneness with his father was his works of what? Kindness. The evidence that Jesus was one with the father was his works, his works of kindness. And that's why Jesus pointed John the Baptist to his medical missionary work as the sign that he was the Messiah. Remember when John the Baptist sent somebody to say, is it you or should we look for another? What did Jesus say? Go back and tell him what? The sick are healed, right? He told him about the works of mercy and love and kindness that he was doing. Now, John's confusion, John the Baptist's confusion about this had come from not realizing that the principle of self-abnegation that the Holy Spirit had called him, John, to follow was really the universal principle of operation for the entire kingdom of heaven and that even the Messiah would live according to this principle of self-denial or self-abnegation. Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, at one was a function of the what? Of the priest. And of course, Jesus is our great high priest. And it is his work to make us at one with him and with the father. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed that his followers might be one with him and the father. And that the world may believe, he said, father, that you have sent me. So it is the glory of Christ like character displayed in the merciful acts of who? Whoops, I didn't come up. Sorry. It is the glory of the Christ like character displayed in the merciful acts of who? His followers, which proves that they are one with him. Does this make sense? People will know we're one with Jesus when we have the merciful acts of kindness that were displayed in his life as well. In fact, this display of Christ-like works by his followers, Jesus said, greater works than you see in me, you will do because I'm going to my father. And of course, he would send the Holy Spirit. Now, Christ's work as the Messiah is described in Isaiah chapter 61. You remember that chapter? That's the chapter that when Jesus went to Nazareth, Nazareth in the synagogue that Sabbath. And uh, what chapter did he read from in the synagogue that day? Isaiah 61, right? Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, set free the captives, opening the prison of those that are bound, right? And then he sat down and he said, what? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Christ's work is described in Isaiah 61. Our work is described where? Isaiah 58, which shows how medical missionary work is to be bound up with the message and sealed with the seal of God. Now, you see that phrase medical missionary work there? You see that? What do we think of when we think of medical missionary work? When we insert the word medical, what do we think of? 
A doctor, right? A hospital, IVs, syringes, operations. We've got to get rid of that thinking. When you read in the spirit of prophecy about medical missionary work, it might include something as simple as giving somebody a, a drink of water or giving them a coat if they're cold. Anything that ministers to a person's physical, mental, and uh, emotional, social needs is included under the umbrella of medical missionary work. Did Jesus do medical missionary work? Oh, very much so. He was a medical missionary evangelist. Even though, did he ever do surgery? Huh? Did he ever, did he ever diagnose anybody with, uh, and make prescriptions? Well, they were kind of of a different nature, weren't they? And yet he was a medical missionary. Now, it says here at the bottom, since the seal of God is the Sabbath, we can't keep. Now, this is a quote from the spirit of prophecy. We cannot keep this day, the Sabbath holy, unless we serve the Lord in the manner brought to view where? Sorry. We can't keep this day, the Sabbath, holy unless we serve the Lord in the manner brought to view where? In Isaiah 58. Now, how many of you kept the Sabbath today? If we measure our keeping of the Sabbath today by Isaiah 58, would that change the way we keep the Sabbath? Would our day have looked any different? If we were doing what it says on Isaiah 58, well, saying here, unless we're living that way, we can't truly be said to be keeping the Sabbath. But not only on the Sabbath, but how about all through the week, right? And then we are entering into God's work and resting on the Sabbath day. Now, look at this one. When our churches will fulfill the duty resting upon them, they will be living Working agencies for the master. The manifestation of Christian love will fill the soul with a deeper, more earnest fervor to work for him who gave his life to save the world. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress because of the inflowing of hundreds and thousands of streams until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. Now, this is a. A good idea, but let's break it down here a little bit. Notice what it says here. The manifestation of Christian love. I guess I can do this, can I? The manifestation of Christian love will fill the soul with a deeper, more earnest fervor. That is to say, when we see somebody manifesting the love of Christ and and ministering to people. Is that me? When one person is manifesting Christian love, what effect will it have on other people around them? Hmm? It's going to give them more of an earnest fervor, isn't it? Like a chain reaction. One person manifests Christian love. The other guy next over goes into a deeper, more earnest fervor to do the same. Um, Back in 1905 in Madison College, That's when the Sabbath school mission story actually began to be developed. Now, the purpose for the first Sabbath school mission stories was not to create bigger offerings coming in for missions. You know what it was for? They told the mission stories so more missionaries would be inspired 
to do what they saw the people doing in the mission stories. It wasn't for money. It was for people. Amen. And that's how it works. You hear somebody doing something very inspiring and you're encouraged to go out and to do the same thing. Now, as this happens, it says that the whole earth is going to be covered as the waters cover the sea. Now, have you ever heard that phrase before? The waters covering the sea. Where do we find that? Well, back again to Isaiah, Isaiah 11 and verse nine. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the what? The sea. And then Habakkuk 2.14 says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Those of you who have done some studying the spirit prophecy in the Bible, what is the glory of the Lord referring to? God's glory is his what? Character, right? Remember when Moses said, show me your glory and God made his goodness pass before Moses and declared the name or the character of the Lord. And so there's coming a time when God's character, the knowledge of God's character is going to be spread all around the world, just as the waters cover the sea. How completely do the waters cover the sea? 100 percent, right? So there's going to be a knowledge of God's character enveloping the entire world before before we're through. And that means that people like you and me are going to be doing the same works that Jesus did using the same method that Jesus used, because we're told in Ministry of Healing 143, Christ's method, what alone will bring true success in reaching the people, right? What was his method? Christ mingled among men like one who desired their good. He sympathized with them. He ministered to their needs. He gained their confidence. And then he bid them to follow me. Now, back to this statement here. What's the first word? When. When you see a sentence beginning with when, what does that imply? Huh? A time period, which is conditional, right? It's conditional. In other words, when our churches fulfill what? The duty resting on them, then everything else happens. They'll be living, working agencies for the master. Manifestation of Christian love fills the soul with a deeper, more earnest fervor to work for him. We're going to see medical missionary work broadening, deepening until thousands of streams, until the whole earth is covered like the waters cover the sea. When our churches fulfill the duty resting upon them. Now, let's ask this question. What if this never happens? What if our churches never fulfill the duty resting upon them? Is that possible? You know, you read the Old Testament. Did God make a lot of promises to Israel in the Old Testament? Were those promises conditional? Did they fulfill their duty? No. Now, we're quick to say, well, those promises to Israel in the Old Testament now have fallen to us. We're spiritual Israel, right? Are the promises to us as spiritual Israel conditional as well? See, my question is, um, is there some, some third option now that would allow us to be unfaithful and still succeed in bringing about what is promised in prophecy? Is that an option? 
And so we need to talk about the magnitude of what we're talking about here. That word when implies two possible outcomes. Either our churches fulfill the duty resting on them and all the rest happens, or our churches never fulfill the duty resting upon them. And then what? You think the Lord's going to say, well, over a period of time, well, we didn't really need a demonstration to convince the world that Jesus was sent from heaven. Let's just have the second coming happen anyway. Is he going to do that? It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Let's look at a worst case scenario. I think I'll be okay. Worst case scenario. Quote, should all the inhabitants of this little world refuse obedience to God, he would not be left without what? He could sweep away. I'm sorry. He could sweep every mortal from the face of the earth in a moment and create a new race to people it and glorify his name. God is not dependent on man for honor. Isn't that amazing? Before Christ's first advent. All heaven waited for the bidding of their commander to pour out the vials of wrath upon a rebellious world. One word from him, one sign, and the world would have been destroyed. The world's unfallen would have said, Amen. Thou art righteous, O God, because thou hast exterminated rebellion. If God just wiped out the, the human race, would the angels say, Oh, Lord, what are you doing? You can't do that. Is that what they would say? They'd say, Amen. You've exterminated rebellion. Wow. God has worlds upon worlds that give him divine honor and heaven and all the universe would have been just as happy if he had left this world to perish. Is our salvation I'm sorry, is the happiness of the universe dependent upon our salvation? It's not, is it? No, it's not. The whole universe is convinced that sin is evil, right? They were convinced of that where? At the cross, right? So they don't need to be convinced about sin. They're just as happy to get rid of it without us being saved. That's basically what what that's saying. Now, do you think this is going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen. But it's a possibility, isn't it? True. Yeah. God is doing what he's doing out of his own grace and initiative and mercy, not out of some obligation to the universe or to the angels, certainly not out of obligation to us. Now, look at this quotation here. Three times Christ prayed. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Then this question, what if his request had been granted? And the cup had passed from him. Remember, we're told in Desire of Ages that Jesus could have wiped the bloody sweat from his brow. And stood up and said, 
leave man to perish in his sin. I will return to my father. Right? He could have done that. In fact, that was a tremendous struggle. Three times he struggled with that decision. Now it says here, the scene, what if that cup had passed from him? The scene that was presented before me as a result of such a decision made me for a time lose all consciousness. When I aroused, the scene was presented to me again and again until it had passed before me three times. As I have thought of that cup trembling in the hands of Christ, as I've realized that he might have refused to drink it and left the world to perish in its sin, I pledge that every energy of my life should be devoted to Christ, that I may win souls to him. Isn't that amazing? Why was Ellen White so devoted to Christ, to evangelism, to soul winning. Why was she? She had seen the results of the decision if Christ had said, forget it, let them perish, and we'll go on. She had seen the results, and it was so awful. She was so thankful to God that, and to Christ that they went through with it. Now, does the glory of the Lord really need to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea? Or can we get by without that? Hmm? Do Adventists really need to represent the character of God in practical works of righteousness, like Isaiah 58 says? Or can we get by without that? Will it be good enough if we just preach the gospel and the three angels' messages to the whole world? Will that be enough? Apparently not. Looking forward... We are to work the works of Christ. Isaiah says, thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. This is the work that must be what? Done before Christ shall come in power and great glory. Man is the agent through whom God works for man. And yet how few have given themselves unreservedly to work the works of God. Man can accomplish nothing without Jesus. And yet it is so arranged in the plan of salvation that... Its great object cannot be consummated without what? Human cooperation. Are you seeing what this is saying? God doesn't have another plan apart from using man. There's no other plan. It's us or nothing. And yet it says how few have given themselves unreservedly to work the works of God. There are some who withhold themselves from their fellow men and shut themselves within themselves. And the gospel of Christ is made what? Void by their practice. Their words go as far as expressions of warmth, but the poor are not clothed, nor fed, nor warmed, nor taught, nor given personal labor. These indolent and slothful servants are abundant, but they say and do not. They themselves are destitute of hope, faith, and love, and they are not helped by the gospel because they are not doers of the word. That's pretty poignant, isn't it? We can say warm expressions of care for people and for the poor and so forth, but if we're not practically feeding them, clothing them, teaching them, giving them personal labor, the gospel's being made void. In their life and in ours. Some moral expressions are made and some frozen exhibitions are shown. You ever seen a frozen exhibition? 
I'd hate to say it, but I think I've probably done a frozen exhibition before. Have you? Some frozen exhibitions are shown, but the bright beams of the sun of righteousness do not penetrate the heart, brighten the life and give vitality to their religious experience. They do not know what service unselfish service to God means. Many consider that it will sometime be their duty, but it cannot be now. They contemplated afar off as something we are not ready for when it should have been brought into their life at the very what? Beginning of their religious experience. Do we have any new converts here tonight? Anybody pretty new? Yeah. It's good to be a new convert because you can bring unselfish service into your experience from the very beginning. Amen. But those of us who've been in the truth or in the church for a long time, and if that unselfish service didn't get put in early, it can be some hard habits for us to unlearn to get back to that kind of service. The moral apathy that is prevailing in the churches today would be largely corrected if they would consider that they are under service to God to do the very work which Christ did when he was upon the earth and went about doing good. What kind of work? I mean, this is an important question. What kind of work? What's it say? The very work which who did? Christ did. Okay. Did Jesus preach? Did Jesus teach? But was that the predominant work that he did? Huh? He did more healing than he did preaching, didn't he? This work is the work the churches have done what? Left undone. And notice this. They cannot what? Prosper until they've taken hold of this work where? In the cities, in the highways, and the hedges. Are there hungry people in Kansas City? Are there people that don't have clothes in Kansas City? Are there people that are sick with diseases? Are there? What says our churches cannot prosper until this work that we've left undone is done. Now, this is good news. The angels of God will cooperate with human instrumentalities and a religious system will be inaugurated. What's the word inaugurated mean? Huh? Started or begun or implemented or established. Look at this. A religious system will be inaugurated to relieve the necessities of suffering human beings who are in physical, mental and moral need. Angels are going to join in and start a whole system of religious work relieving uh, physical suffering. But it rests with us. There's a bunch of people that need help, but it rests with us as individual Seventh-day Adventists to decide whether or not this is going to happen in our own lives and in our own church. Have you ever heard of the, uh, the unified field in physics? 
the unified field. There are four forces in uh, physics, electromagnetism, gravity, the strong atomic force, the weak atomic force. But there is a unified uh, force that brings all four of these difficult things to explain together in a oneness. And we're finding tonight that the topic of Christ-like good works as a sign of the at-one-ment has connections to the plan of salvation. It has connections to eschatology. It has connections to end-time events that are really, truly amazing. And so that's why we're going back now to Isaiah 58, verse 1. What's it say? Cry aloud. Spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their what? Transgressions. And the house of Jacob their sins. Now we started off tonight. Who's this chapter for? This is for the Sabbath keepers, right? And he's saying, cry out to the Sabbath keepers. Tell them their transgression and their sins. Now, it says cry aloud, and there's a connection, I think, here to the loud cry. Cry aloud is also linked to the Day of Atonement because there's that, there's that trumpet. You remember it was... Um, the trumpet that blew for 10 days prior to the Day of Atonement. So this is a real Day of Atonement terminology here in Isaiah 58. Whoops, there's the one in uh, Leviticus 25. You'll cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the 7th month, the Day of Atonement. You'll make the trumpet sound throughout all the land. So when Isaiah says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, he's calling to people in the Day of Atonement, and especially to Sabbath keepers there. As you read on in the chapter. Now, let's look at the loud cry. We've heard about that. But what is it? The time of test is just upon us for the loud cry. The third angel has already what? Begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin pardoning redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth as the waters do what? Cover the sea, right? So the loud cry and by the way, when was this written? What year? 1892. Had the loud cry begun in 1892? It says it had, right? And the loud cry began with the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. Now, if you've done some study of history in the Adventist church, you know that 1888, there was a big emphasis on righteousness by faith, right? A.T. Jones, E.J. Wagner, all of that. Remember that? Okay, and coming out of the 1888 Minneapolis conference, the loud cry had already begun because there was a revelation of the righteousness of Christ. But notice what the righteousness of Christ entails. This was written in 1910. Faith in Jesus Christ as a personal savior, the one who pardons our sins and transgressions, the one who's able to keep us from sin and lead us in his footsteps is set forth where? Okay, where's the righteousness of Christ set forth? Isaiah 58, right? So then if the righteousness of Christ had begun to be revealed 1888 and onward, then there had to be some emphasis being given to Isaiah chapter 58, right? Here are presented, Isaiah 58, the fruits of a faith that works by love and purifies the soul from what? Selfishness. 
Faith and works are here in this chapter combined. The righteousness, thy righteousness shall go before thee. What does this mean? Christ our righteousness. If you had one chapter in the Bible to point to, to say that is a revelation of the righteousness of Christ, what chapter would you point to? Isaiah chapter 58. Did Jesus keep the Sabbath? Did he restore the Sabbath to its true meaning? Yes. But is that all that Jesus did? He broke the yoke. He let the oppressed go free. He fed the hungry. He ministered to the sick and the outcast. He did everything there in Isaiah chapter 58. And so during the antitypical day of atonement that we've been in since 1844, there is a message addressed to the church it's kind of a rebuke but it's more like reformatory education because really what Isaiah 58 is telling us is it's spelling out what God's people are doing that is defeating their work of evangelism it's telling God's people what they're doing that's actually working against their work of evangelism What do they say? Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and strike with the fist of wickedness. Hey, let me, tell, let me ask you, is it possible to be engaged in a fast and still be as mean as the devil? Is it possible to fast and treat your family in very unkind and unchristian ways? Is that possible? Or your work associates or fellow church members? Have you ever seen that? Possible, isn't it? That's what Israel was doing. They were fasting, but then they would strike somebody with their fist. They had a clenched fist was their attitude as they were fasting. And they were saying, God, why don't you notice? That we're denying ourselves of food and, you know, we're, we're following the health message. Ever met somebody that followed the health message to the T but was not a very pleasant person to be around in their attitude? Huh? Have you seen that? And so that's what Israel was doing. And God says, you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul, to bow down his head like a bulrush and spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, God says, an acceptable day to the Lord? So God's saying to them, that this approach, it isn't working. It will never work because it's completely contrary to the principles of Christ and the life that he lived. And so Jesus says, try this approach. Try loving the people not in word, but in practice, actual helpful service. Loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, share your bread with the hungry, shelter the poor who are cast out, clothe the naked, extend your soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul. What we really have in Isaiah 58 is a church that doesn't know that they have a problem. And a stunningly negative divine diagnosis with the prescription for their healing 
and a conditional promise of success and glory and honor if they'll follow that prescription. Does that sound familiar? Any place else in the Bible we find a church that doesn't know its condition? That thinks it's doing well? When in reality it's not doing well? With a prescription and a promise that if they'll follow that prescription, everything will work out great and they'll have honor and glory? Where else do we find that? Right. Here's the church. To the angel of the church of what? Laodicea. And here's the diagnosis. These things says the amen, the faithful and true what? Witness. What's that mean? Faithful and true witness. It means he sees the way we're living, doesn't he? He sees the way we're living. And he says, I know your what? Works. You're neither cold nor hot. Wish you were cold or hot. Because you're lukewarm and either cold or hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth because you say, well, I'm rich and become wealthy. I have need of nothing and don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, I know your theology. He doesn't say, I know your diet. I know your entertainment choices and preferences, your television viewing habits. He zeroes in and he says, I know your what? I know your works. Now, what kind of works do you suppose he might have in mind? Before we move on to that, let's just establish something here. Is diet important? It is, isn't it? Praise God for our health message. Are standards important? What we watch, what we look at, what we listen to, how we dress? It's all very important. But is it the most important thing? Are any of those things the most important thing? Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You pay tithe the mint and anise and cumin, but you have neglected, what did he call them? The weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and love and faith. Okay? So, the little things, if we want to call them that, are not irrelevant. In fact, it's faithfulness in the littler things that prepares us to be more useful and more faithful in the big things, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to go minister to somebody in the city if you're sick yourself, right? Or if you're depressed. Or if you're having some kind of you know, physical problems, it's hard to be effective that way. And so they're not irrelevant. But at the same time, we need to be clear... That if faithfulness in the littler things makes us unfaithful in the big things, that is nauseating to the Lord, isn't it? It's nauseating. For us to be all focused on the little details, getting them all right, but neglecting the real works of Jesus for other people, that's not right. Now, it says the problem with Laodicea is she thinks she's rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing. Is that talking about spiritual riches or physical riches? Hmm? What do you think? Well, I used to think it was just talking about spiritual. But I think there's a literal aspect to this. 
Do you think it's possible there's a genuine psychological effect on people that live with wealth all around them in the wealthiest nation on earth? Is there, is there a psychological effect? I think there probably is, don't you? And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But here's a prescription. I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. White garments, you'll be clothed. Shame your nakedness won't appear. Anoint your eyes with eye sap so you can see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So be zealous, therefore, and repent. And here comes the promise. Behold, I stand at the door and what? Knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, I used to see that as completely spiritual, too. Jesus is knocking at the door of our heart. We need to invite him to come in. And if we do, he'll come in. But could this be physical as well? If somebody knocks on our door and they're hungry and we hear them and we open the door, who's coming in? If you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. I'll come in with you and eat with you. And you with me. You see what I'm saying? It could be a real literal aspect here to this. Tim overcomes, overcomes what? What do you need to overcome to invite somebody in your house like that? What's our problem? Selfishness, right? To, he overcomes his selfishness, his self-centeredness. To him I will grant to sit with me where? On my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Even Jesus had to overcome. He overcame in his life and he overcame in the garden when he was tempted. Now, all of this tonight we've studied so far could turn into a pretty good thesis paper for a doctrinal class or something. And we could say, well, it makes sense. It sounds good. And we could just uh, figure that we agree with it and close the doors and go home. But we don't want to do that. We need to go a step further here. It says here, since the time of the Minneapolis meeting, I have seen the state of the Laodicean church as never before. There it is. So coming out of 1888, when there was a revelation of the righteousness of Christ, as is displayed like no other place in Isaiah 58, Ellen White said, since that time, I have seen the condition of Laodicean church like never before. Here's one from early writings. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen, and I was shown it would be caused by the what? Straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They'll rise up against it, and this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. Will the straight testimony cause a shaking? It will, won't it? But what is the straight testimony? Well, there's been people over the years that have been rising up with ministries saying they're giving the straight testimony. And usually the straight testimony is preaching or talking about uh, sin, having to do with some of the other things we talked about, diet, Dress, entertainment, standards. 
And some of those have done some good, I think. They've, they've called our attention to some important things. But is that what the straight testimony is all about? I stand at the door and knock, and it says, The heavenly guest, capital G, who's that? Jesus is standing at your door while you are piling up obstructions to bar his entrance. Look at this. This is amazing. Jesus is knocking through the what? Through the what? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading up here and you're not able to read. Sorry. There you go. Jesus is knocking through the what? Am I still on the wrong slide? Okay, sorry. Now we'll get it. Heavenly guest is standing at your door. You're piling up obstructions to bar his interest. Jesus is knocking through the what? That he gives you. Isn't that amazing? What's he knocking through? The prosperity. He loads you with blessings to test your fidelity that they may flow out from you to others. Will you permit your selfishness to triumph? Will you squander God's talents and lose your soul through idolatrous love of the blessings he has given? It's possible to love the gifts and not the giver, isn't it? And so he loading on it. Has God loaded on us in America blessings? Yes. And he's testing us to see what we'll do with them, isn't he? Will we use them for selfish means? All his gifts are to be used in blessing humanity. And here's how relieving the suffering and the needy. We are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for the widow and the fatherless, minister to the distressed and downtrodden. God never meant that the widespread misery in the world should exist. He never meant that one man should have an abundance of the luxuries of life while the children of others should cry for bread. The means over and above the actual necessities of life are entrusted to man to do good and to bless humanity. That sound familiar? I don't want to get on a political tangent tonight, but there are many people that feel like in the current presidential administration that there's a real desire to redistribute what? Well, have you heard that? Is it God's will that the wealth be distributed? Is it God's will that the government force us to do it? No. It's God's will that the children of God be on the cutting edge of looking for where there can be more equality so that somebody doesn't have great luxuries while the children of others are crying for bread. Would you agree that it's because the church hasn't done this that the government feels a need? To step in and fill the void. Interesting, isn't it? And you have to go home tonight and ask yourself, as we all do, what are the necessities of life? What are the necessities? Because over and above the necessities, those things are for us to share with others. The Lord says, sell what you have and give alms. Be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. When you make a feast, who are you supposed to call? The poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. 
Loose the bands of wickedness, undo the heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, deal your bread to the hungry, bring the poor that are cast out to your house. When you see the naked, cover him, satisfy the afflicted soul, go to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. These are the Lord's commands. Words by themselves will never be the straight testimony, will they? It's the acts of righteousness. That's a straight testimony. The work of the people of God is to enlighten the world in accordance with the directions given in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Here is presented the plan of work, which is to be carried on where? I'm sorry. Here's presented the plan of work, which is to be carried on where? In every place where the truth takes hold of minds and hearts. In connection with the proclamation of the message is to be done the work of relieving families who are in distress. Those who take their position on the Lord's side are to see in Seventh-day Adventists a warm-hearted, self-denying, self-sacrificing people who cheerfully and gladly minister to the needy. Now, there are some limits on this kind of work. We have to keep a balance here because it says in this statement that the work of providing for all the depraved, all the drunkards and all the prostitutes has not and never will be given to Seventh-day Adventists. What's the key word in that sentence? Huh? Somebody said it. Key word is all right. Our job is not to try to solve all the problems of all the people. That will never be our work. But. Is it our work to provide for some of the depraved, some of the drunkards, some of the prostitutes? Will some of them respond? And might we bestow labor on some people that don't respond? Is that still okay too? I think it is. All right. So medical missionary work, remember, that's a broad definition. Doesn't mean you have to be a doctor. Uh, Anybody can do it. Amen. If you can carry a cup of water, you can be a medical missionary. It's a sign of our atonement with Jesus. It's the evidence of his messiahship. It's the prerequisite for the latter reign. It's the glory of the Lord in the loud cry. And it's what Laodiceans don't have. I think what we're finding tonight is we could pray on our knees for the rest of our lives, for the latter rain to fall, and it's not going to come until we rise up, take hold of the work of Isaiah 58, and said, I'm going to show the world what God is really like and do the works of Jesus in my life and the life of the church corporately. There were two uh, big fires In Battle Creek in 1902, the sanitarium burned down in February and the Review and Herald Publishing Association burned down in December. Anybody read about these fires up there in Battle Creek? Spirit of Prophecy says, notwithstanding the plain evidence of the Lord's providence in these destructive fires, some among us have not hesitated to make light of the statement that these buildings were burned because men had been swaying things in directions which the Lord could not approve. Men have been departing from right principles for the promulgation of which these institutions were established. They have failed of doing the very work that God ordained should be done to prepare a people to build the old waste places, stand in the breach as represented in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. In this scripture, the work we are to do is clearly defined as being what? 
Why were those buildings allowed to burn down in Battle Creek? Because we weren't doing the work of Isaiah 58. What were we doing instead? Building big institutions, right? And inviting the people to come to us instead of going out and spreading out with small institutions where everybody could take hold of the work and do the work of Isaiah 58. This work is to be done in all places. God has a vineyard and he desires that his vineyard shall be worked unselfishly. No parts are to be neglected. The most neglected portions needs the most wide awake missionaries to do the work, which through Isaiah, the Holy Spirit has portrayed. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? The word was spoken. God will cleanse and purify his temple in his displeasure. In the visions of the night, I saw a sword of fire hung out over Battle Creek. Brethren, God is in earnest with us. I want to tell you that if after the warnings given in these burnings, the leaders of our people go right on, just as they've done in the past, exalting themselves, God will take the bodies next. Just as surely as he lives, he'll speak to them in language that they cannot fail to understand. Now, shifting gears here a little bit. The unjust steward's new plan to the unfaithful steward of his Lord's goods has been entrusted for benevolent purposes, but he had used them for who? Self. So with Israel, the servant in the parable had made no provision for the future. The goods entrusted to him for the benefit of others he had used for himself, but he had thought only of the present when the stewardship should be taken from him. He would have nothing to call his own. But his master's goods were still in his hands, and he determined to use them to secure himself against future want. To accomplish this, he must work on a new plan. Instead of gathering for himself, he must impart to who? Others. So with the Pharisees, the stewardship was soon to be taken from them, and they were called upon to provide for the future. Only by seeking the good of others could they benefit themselves. Only by imparting God's gifts in the present life could they provide for eternity. We're the stewards, aren't we? Do we have lots of gifts that God has given us? Have we used them for ourselves? Is a time coming when the stewardship will be taken away from us? How can we prevent that tragedy? By working on a new plan and from here into the future, using the blessings God has given us for the benefit of others. That's the message. Medical missionary work then, sign of our one with Jesus, evidence of a messiahship, prerequisite for the latter rain, glory to the Lord in loud cry, what Laodiceans don't have, fire retardant, and the unjust steward's new plan. Uh, it's also the call to Last Supper. I'm going to skip over this for the sake of time here. And uh, here's an important uh, combination of statements. There we go. Christ is waiting with longing desire. How many have read this quote before? Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of who? Himself where? His church. Okay. Jesus is waiting. He hasn't come back yet. What's he waiting for? He wants to see himself in the church, right? When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. 
Is Jesus just waiting for no reason? As soon as he sees this happen, he's going to come, isn't he? Character of Christ perfectly reproduced in his people. But what is the character of Christ? Next statement. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs what? Constantly from within. When you are constantly having an impulse inside of you to help someone, to bless someone else, you can know then the character of Christ has been reproduced in you. Amen? Wow. As Christians, we are to have a righteousness that shall be developed and what? Seen. A righteousness that represents the character of Jesus Christ when he was in our world. They saw it when he was here, and then he left. And since he left, the world's only hope of seeing it is in his people, right? That's where it is. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God. Now, does that mean we need to hold up a picture and say, Behold your God? (laughs) We need to be the picture, don't we? And so people could look at us and say, Wow, that must be what God is like. They behold their God in us. Isn't that amazing? What did Jesus say? You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, right? The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Search heaven and earth and there is no truth revealed more powerful than that which is made manifest in works of mercy and those who need our sympathy and aid. This is the truth as it is in Jesus. When those who profess the name of Christ shall practice the principles of the golden rule, the same power will attend the gospel as in apostolic times. The standard of the golden rule is the true standard of Christianity, and anything short of it is a what? Deception. We're getting close to the end. This ought to get our attention here. How many of you want to see the same power that you read about in the book of Acts? And we want to see that, don't we? We pray for that. We will see that when we do the same thing the apostles were doing in the book of Acts. God's work is ever to be a sign of his benevolence. Just as that sign is manifest in the working of our institutions, it will win the confidence of the people And it will bring in resources for the advancement of his kingdom. I was reading that I think it was Dr. Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg, who wanted to start an orphan's home for boys. And so he drew up the plans and to build this big orphan's home, had the plans all drawn by an architect. They came up with the price and he sent out uh, appeals to the Adventists to Give so they could build this orphan's home. That was like pulling teeth. They couldn't get the money. Couldn't get people to give toward the orphan's home. All the people wanted the money to go toward the preaching of the three angels' messages. And then some woman, not an Adventist, heard about it, came to them and said, heard you're interested in building an orphan's home. 
Yes, we are. We have the plans. How much do you need? Oh, we need thousands. How many thousands do you need? 20,000? That would help. 30,000? That would build a building. Next day, she shows up with a check. $30,000. I have one request, she said. Would you name the building after my husband? And so the orphan's home was built. Not by the gifts and offerings of our people, unfortunately. But what's it say? The manifestation of God's benevolence will win the confidence of the people and bring in what? Resources for the advancement of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, when the world sees us doing the works of Jesus, the resources are going to come, aren't they? God is going to provide resources from places we never imagined to carry on that great work that he's given us to do. The Lord will withdraw, though, his blessing where selfish interests are indulged in any phase of the work. But he'll put his people in possession of good throughout the whole world if they'll use it for the uplifting of humanity. The experience of apostolic days will come to us when we wholeheartedly accept God's principle of benevolence. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there's going to be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. You know, at the general conference, we're talking about revival and what? Reformation. Do we need revival? But when revival comes, there's going to be a reformation And that reformation, I'm beginning to see, is going to look different than maybe what we thought it would. When the reformation comes, are people going to change their diet? Yeah. Their dress? Their standards? Yes. But the big change and reform, I believe, will come in the benevolent works of mercy that Jesus performed Nothing will help us more at this stage of our work than to understand and fulfill the mission of the greatest medical missionary that ever trod the earth. Nothing will help us more than to realize how sacred is this kind of work and how perfectly it corresponds with the life work of the great missionary. The object of our mission is the same as the object of Christ's mission. Why did God send his son to the fallen world? To make known and demonstrate to mankind his love for them. Nothing will help us more, it says. Twice in that paragraph, nothing will help us more. The object of our mission is the same as the object of Christ's mission. God's purpose in committing to men and women the mission that he committed to Christ is to disentangle his followers from the worldly policy and give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. When Jesus healed people, you know what the Bible says the people did when they saw the healings? What did they do? They glorified God, didn't they? They glorified God. When we do medical missionary work in the true sense, people are going to look at it and they're going to glorify God when they see it happening. In no way could the Lord be better glorified and the truth more highly honored than for unbelievers to see that the truth has wrought a great and good work upon the lives of naturally covetous 
and penurious men. If it could be seen that the faith of such had an influence to mold their characters, to change them from close, selfish, overreaching, money-loving men to men who love to do good, who seek opportunities to use their means to bless those who need to be blessed, who visit the widow and fatherless in their affliction, and who keep themselves unspotted from the world, it would be an evidence that their religion was genuine. And so let's just summarize again. There they are. Medical missionary work is a sign of our atonement with Jesus. Evidence of his messiahship, prerequisite for the latter rain, the glory of the Lord and the loud cry, what Laodiceans don't have, fiery tardant, unjust stewards' new plan, last call to the supper, an apostolic power to reveal God's glory. I probably uh, should go ahead and stop right there for the sake of time, but let, let's, let's go ahead with... One more paragraph, and I'm sure you've I'm sure you've heard this before. But when Jesus comes back again, you know, according to Matthew 25, the son of man comes in his glory. The angels come with him. He's going to sit on the throne of his glory. They're going to gather all the nations before him and he's going to separate what? The sheep from the goats, right? And he's going to put the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left, and he's going to look at the uh, sheep and say, um, what's he going to say? Blessed, my father, enter into the kingdom. Why? I was sick and you what? Visited me, right? I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was in prison, you visited me, right? They say what? When, when did we do that? You did to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. He turns to the goats and says, you, I was sick and you didn't visit me. I was in prison, you didn't come. I was cast out, you didn't bring me into your house. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And they say, what? When do we see you? And so the whole judgment is pictured here as turning on one point. And there it is. Uh, is this a pointer? There we go. When the nations are gathered before him, there will be but how many classes? And their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the person, the poor, and the suffering. At Seventh-day Adventist, we're declaring a message. Fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his what? Judgment is come. And if we're going to proclaim that judgment has come, we need to also understand what the basis of the judgment is going to be. And the destiny of souls will hinge for us and those we seek to reach on what we have done for Christ in the person of the poor and the suffering. Now, when I first read these things, to me it was pretty heavy. And I felt the weight of this truth just sinking, uh, coming on my soul. You know, I felt that. Have you felt that tonight? This is not one of those messages you can just say, oh, that was a good presentation or whatever, and go home and go about your business, is it? This is one of those things that when you hear it, you can't be the same ever again. You've got to do something about it. We can't just look in the mirror and then go away and forget what we look like. 
got to take hold of it. And so the first time I heard these things, while it was a burden of conviction, it also brings me great hope. Does it bring you hope? Because I can see that when these things come together with our beautiful message and these works of mercy and righteousness, we take hold of them and do the works of Jesus and live the way he lived. Then the message is going to go like fire in the stubble, isn't it? There'll be nothing holding it back. The world will see uh, what God wants them to see. So I want you to be very encouraged, but I want you to be challenged that as we leave here tonight, And you think about the evangelistic meetings coming up. Pastor Eddie has been uh, planning so well and emphasizing. Uh, We want to see the seats filled at the auditorium, don't we? And we have learned by experience, I hope we've learned by experience, that those seats in the auditorium will never be filled by handbills mailed out to people's mailboxes. Will they? Some of the seats will be filled that way. But how many more seats to be filled if all of us daily would be living like Jesus, mingling among men as one who desired their good, discovering what they need, doing all we can to meet that need, bringing the church members together, medical missionary evangelism, gaining their confidence, and then saying, by the way, would you like to come to a meeting with me? There's some meetings on Bible prophecy coming up I'd like you to attend. Do you think it would work? That is a work that cannot fail. God will bless that like nothing else. Well, I asked Chris if she would kind of tie it off again tonight by leading us uh, in prayer. And so let me invite my wife to come up and uh, lead us in a closing uh, season of prayer specifically looking at the things that we've studied here tonight.